Episode 866 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com, and second but certainly not least, our supporters on Patreon. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hey, Ben. We are doing a listener email show. Anything you want to banter about before we begin? Yeah, I uh, want to talk about something I heard an announcer say yesterday. Uh, other people might have heard it as well if they were watching the exact same game at the exact same time that I was. It was an announcer talking about Noah Syndergaard, and what he said about Noah Syndergaard is... Do I have the quote? Oh, yeah. All right. Well, anyway, I'm going to... Uh, there's three key words that matter. It's the announcer said that Syndergaard has to be the best pitcher in baseball right now. Hmm. He said it very emphatically. He said he repeated it over and over again. And then when his partner, uh, not argumentatively, but said, yeah, no, it's it's an interesting discussion. Some of the other names that come to mind are Clayton Kershaw. And the other guy said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and the key thing, I think, is uh, the reason I bring it up is, is because of I want to talk about right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, You hear this sometimes where a person will uh, will use some incredible hyperbole to describe a player and then at the end tack on right now. Yeah. And so then it's sort of a way of cheating. So Like you're not necessarily saying that Noah Syndergaard is actually the best pitcher in baseball, but right now he is. Like for the, these five minutes yep. he is, or for these two months he is. And it, it creates this sort of, Heisenbergian uncertainty where it cannot be proven or disproven uh-huh. uh, and no one even knows what you mean and like for how long what is your time period is this looking backward is it looking forward are you saying that his last start on Tuesday last Tuesday nobody pitched better on Tuesday than he did or are you saying something bigger and broader than that and really anytime you're making a claim where no one knows what your claim is you have no responsibility to it, but also you're accomplishing nothing. Uh, and so I think that that the that the goal of this is simply to use some some stew of words to make the case that Noah Syndergaard is very good. And he could have said anything. He could have, you know, just he could have like you know he, he's just, he's using hyperbole. He's using. Uh, uh, sort of almost, it's like, so it's like dogs, you know, like if you talk to a dog and you're like, sit, right? The dog doesn't necessarily know the sound sit, but it knows the tone that you're using. So if you go to that dog and you go, you, you say, soup, the dog's gonna sit, right? Cause uh-huh. he knows, like, he knows, like when, when dude comes over and goes, uh, like that in that tone, I sit, right? And you could be like, couch. Or anything, just any yeah. word in that tone, and so it doesn't really matter <laughs> that that he chose the adjective best. It doesn't really matter that he said that he defined his population of players that he's comparing Syndergaard to to all of baseball. It doesn't even matter that he said right now. He's really just trying to say, "Boy, guys, you notice Noah Syndergaard lately? 
he's pretty fun. <laughs> uh, it's also possible, though, that he truly thinks that he that, that this is true, that, that in fact Noah Syndergaard is the best pitcher in baseball right now, and mm-hmm. that, that means something to him. And, and I, it means nothing to me. And so if that is what, what this announcer means, I uh, reject him as an announcer. The third possibility is that he genuinely believes that Noah Syndergaard has actually become the best pitcher in baseball, that he yeah. has passed Clayton Kershaw. And um, this is an absurd thing to be confident about. Yes. Right? Even if you think that this might have happened, even if you think a, a corner has been turned, even if you are of the belief that uh, some combination of stats and scouting can um, can make one change their minds about uh, a pitcher of Syndergaard's capabilities relative to a pitcher of Kershaw's, even in over just the span of three starts, uh, you would still have to, a reasonable person would have more doubt than has to be, has to be, has to be. But... Okay, so I want to just quickly engage you on this question. How how realistic is it for a person to think that Noah Syndergaard is the best pitcher in baseball? Secondarily, how because Kershaw is so so good that it kind of you know skews this whole conversation. How realistic is it for a person to say that Noah Syndergaard is in fact the second best pitcher in baseball? <laughs> I'm sympathetic, sort of, because if you watched. Noah Syndergaard's three starts thus far this season, it's hard to see those starts and imagine that a human being could be better at yeah. pitching than that. <laughs> right, exactly. I, if, if his point is, if, if, if his point is point number three, that he actually believes, then I'm only criticizing him for his confidence, uh, in his own opinions. It is a kind of an interesting question. How good is Syndergaard? How good can we say he is after three starts? Yeah, right. I mean, when you have a guy who throws 98 and now suddenly he throws a slider that is really good and goes harder than anyone else's slider and he has these other good pitches and he's been overpowering in the past and now suddenly he has leveled up, he has upgraded. It's, uh, it's, it's persuasive. It, it's, uh, no one, no human being could convince me that he is better than Kershaw after three starts, even if we're saying just you know, right now, just start today or the rest of the season or whatever it is. Yeah. I I still, you know, it would, would take me longer than that. But if you were, if you were to just project who the best starting pitcher would be based on pure stuff, just looking at, you know, pitch FX stats for what a guy throws or something or stat cast stats for what a guy throws, then I would think that you would probably have Syndergaard at the top of that list. Yeah, as as a set of blueprints, he is the one that you um have the uh have the boys in 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 um in the shop build. Like he's yeah. he's the best set of blueprints in baseball. Yeah. At this point. But mm-hmm. uh and the performance is exceptional to date in in this season and it was extremely good last season too. Uh, mm-hmm. we have this is always a difficult question to get your head around because uh, in the short term, you might be uh, too affected by this feeling of, of, uh, of hotness or, or pitcher being locked in or whatever. Uh, and in the long term, then you start to have all sorts of complicating factors like aging and, and health and injury risk and all that. So sometimes I'll ask you uh, if uh, you needed one pitcher to make a start on, let's say, August 4th of this year, mm-hmm. how many names... Before you get to Syndergaard. 
Um, I mean, he's he's he throws so his stuff seems so otherworldly right now that he would be like at the top of my Tommy John list probably, just because it seems like a, a human arm should not be able to to do that yeah, I'm, for I'm very long. That. But it, assuming look, he's healthy, fine, fine. May fourteenth, just yeah, okay. so, sometime not today, not this week, but not far in the future. I mean, he'd he'd be top five. He'd be top five. Would, I think. Is there any yeah. chance that he's number two? I'm trying to think of who I would want over him. I mean, I Arietta, Grant, not even not Granky. probably not Granky's. You'd have well, Kershaw, the, Arietta. Yeah, Kershaw. You'd have other, Kershaw's number one, and then and Maybe then you'd have Sale, Arietta, Sale, Fernandez, Strasburg, Scherzer, Scherzer, all are yeah, all right roughly there. same range. And I mean, you know, you'd have like look. It's not it six months ago. Degrom and Harvey were starting games one and two of the postseason. And mm-hmm. Syndergaard was, you know, in the back half of that rotation. So you could make a case for each of them. Yep. And did I say Fernandez? Yes. So, um, you know, you said top Archer, five. Perhaps. Uh, yeah. I did say top five, so I guess I would stick to that. But not, you would not say, so you're saying fifth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Okay. I think I would, I think I'm the same. I think I'm about fifth. I don't think I'm going over sale or Arietta right now. So the highest I would go today is is four. You have Rich Hill in there somewhere too. So you gotta make room for him. But I would be I would I would I would be content to have him I I'd put him fifth. I'd have Fernandez. I'd have Jose Fernandez over him too. Okay. All by right. the way, the picture, you know the the picture that was tweeted by the Mets S N Y field reporter of the imprint of the cross necklace yeah, yeah. on Kevin Ploiecki's chest the other day. That was that was great, but that was like a classic fun fact lie, I think. That you know how we always talk about how yeah. fun facts lie in some way, they distort reality in some way. This to me was an interesting picture. It's visually arresting. Yeah. It's not something I've seen before, but it also doesn't to me say anything about Cindergard, right? A ninety <laughs> a ninety six mile an hour fastball. Wait, go ahead. Well, it, thing is, yes, right. So he, you know, all the stories were, oh, he was averaging ninety eight or ninety nine or hundred or whatever. I mean, you know, it could be ninety three and it would still leave an imprint. Yeah, anyone could leave that imprint. The the more relevant thing is, it was a curveball. Oh my gosh! <laughs> it God. was an eighty three mile per hour curveball. Oh. And one, one post I I saw about it said, like, for emphasis, oh, and it was a curveball, as if, like, that He's, makes Syndergaard's like superpowers even yeah. greater. Like, he can throw a curveball and do this, but no, really, it, it just means, right. I mean, I don't know, maybe, I guess if you if you throw a 70-mile-per-hour curveball, maybe you don't leave such a good imprint. I don't know. Yeah, but, but you could throw any number of pitches harder yes, than 83. Exactly. It would be like if you replaced that for emphasis, oh, and it was 83. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, very cool picture. Definitely worthy of being tweeted, but very I'm, misleading. I'm looking forward to the tweet that shows a picture of a baseball thrown by Noah Syndergaard uh, embedded in the pocket Bible that the catcher keeps in his breast pocket uh-huh. and that saved his life. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's what <laughs> that I would be convincing. All right. all right. That's all I got. Okay. Then let's start with a quick one, just a throat clearer from Patreon supporter Bob Stocking, 
who says, in the top of the sixth in yesterday, I believe, afternoon's Brewers-Twins game, Jonathan Villar singled, then was forced out in a 3-6-3 double play, one of my favorites. After the batter struck out, the Twins announcer said, the Brewers go down 1-2-3, and as we head to the bottom of the sixth, etc. I've heard other announcers make the same pronouncement. While it's true that only three men batted, the first one was not retired as a batter, only as a runner. In my mind, that's not a 1-2-3 inning. How does it look to you? I mean, obviously correct. He is obviously yes. correct. This was <laughs> I would I would guess that the announcer himself would admit that he just misspoke. Nobody would call that a one two three. There is a one two three implies the sequential outs of one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. However, I always did as a as going back to my childhood, uh, think that it was perfectly fine to say three up, three down. Uh-huh. For such a situation. Yeah. And three up, three down's okay. I I could see arguing with me on that, uh, although I couldn't see caring enough to argue with me about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we have separate ways to describe these things. We have one, two, three, we have set down in order or retired in order. Those are clearly one, two, three. Everyone gets out in succession. And then we have face the minimum. That is a, a separate description that we have that applies to that situation i've never i don't think i've ever really heard somebody say face the minimum for a single inning. single inning Mm. are you are you do you object to the uh use of strike out the side when you know four hits and three runs have come in in between (laughs) um it's underwhelming in that case but i don't think it's inaccurate well it's the problem is that it's underwhelming in that case and therefore it pollutes all the cases where it sh- doesn't need to be underwhelming, you know. Uh-huh. And, and instead, we force broadcasters to say "strike out the side" in order, and that's extra words. I, I, I. Well, to me, I guess it. I mean, I guess that's what the side is. But uh-huh. to me, the side should be the inning. Like, if you strike out the side, to me, the, what is the side? To what do you think the side <laughs> refers to? I would think the side. I think it's just I think it's your three outs. I know, I guess it is, but it feels like it should be the slate of batters that batted on that side of the score, the scoreboard that inning, right? I don't know if yeah. it is. It must not be. But I think of, there's a line separating the top half of the inning from the bottom half of the inning, and your side is your side, the top or the bottom. And mm-hmm. so to strike out the side would be to strike out all the uh, the offense that happened on that side of the line. Uh, uh, it's not, probably, because otherwise that <laughs> phrase wouldn't be used the way it is. Uh, but that seems like the most reasonable origin of the phrase. Um, and uh, I I don't know. It's I, I've always wished that we could reclaim strike out the side for only in order. Uh-huh. I think I and I think other I, I do see sometimes some some gentle mockery of the notion of saying that somebody struck out the side. Um, while also yes. giving up seven and a, seven and a half runs, yes. um, yeah. There's also the matter. This is irrelevant. This is you know off topic, but it's also the matter of the uh, the hold slash loss, where you can you can get a hold and a loss in the same mm. outing. Totally different topic. But someday we should talk about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think you can. We'll save that for sweeps week. Okie doke. All right. Question from Joe G in Pittsburgh. It's really a statement that I will make into a question. He says, I have spent the past two hours on my company's clock 
trying to figure out what type of final game David Ortiz would need to have in order to compare to Kobe's final game. I am no math or statistical whiz, and comparing baseball to basketball statistics ended up being harder than I thought. For the sake of comparison, I valued field goal attempts to equal at-bats, field goal makes to equal hits, walks to equal made free throws, and extra base hits to equal three-pointers made. Using Kobe's per-game averages for the 2015-16 season as the baseline, I found the percentage increase for Kobe's stat line in his last game. So his 50 field goal attempts was a 196% increase over his usual. His field goals made was a 267% increase. His three-pointers made was a 200% increase. His free throws made was a 186% increase. So using David Ortiz's 2015 per-game averages as a baseline, Joe calculated a potential batting line based on Kobe's percentage increases. And he found that rounding to the nearest total number and factoring in that exactly half of his extra base hits in 2015 were doubles and half were home runs, Ortiz would need to go four for 11 with two walks, one home run, and one double. A great game, sure, but hardly as exciting as Kobe yakking 50 jumpers at will in fact, Big Poppy's stat line seems like a typical game in Toronto with Clay Buckholtz facing R.A. Dickey. So I wanted to ask whether my response to, to Joe was that this sort of brought home to me how different these two sports are in their capacity to allow one athlete to monopolize the minutes mm -hmm. to take over the game. And I'm curious about whether you are happy that baseball is as it is. And and not necessarily in the Kobe case, because maybe you don't want Kobe to do well, or maybe it's not entertaining to watch a bad basketball player take over a game. But a good basketball player can also do that to an extent that a baseball player cannot. And so I wonder whether the the downside of missing out on one player just sort of taking over a game and having a truly transcendent performance is offset by the fact that you don't have to worry about a game being ruined by one guy getting to hog all the at-bats? Uh, well, the you're saying uh, it's offset by the fact that once every few decades we don't have to deal with Kobe Bryant or someone like him retiring? Well, I guess I'm not, I'm not that Kobe kind of did it all season. Like, but... I think, yeah, I think generally the NBA will survive Kobe yes. Bryant's last season. I It's a deeper philosophical question than that i i guess or it's just sort of fundamental i don't even know if it's worth litigating it <laughs> but they're just different sports yeah it's well, like i don't i don't know that i don't know how to answer it, it but do you wish that baseball like really were more like whether uh, it's like really asking me whether i prefer that the sky is blue or that the grass is green and am i glad that the sky isn't green or that the grass isn't blue like, yeah, they're different things. They're, they yeah. are nice. They're both nice. <laughs> <laughs> I will. The, the only I was trying to think of a, a comparable situation to Kobe. And the only thing I can think of was my first uh, indie ball game um, that I went to in 2014 was actually not to a Stompers game, but to their rivals, the, the San Rafael Pacifics. And they had Eric Burns, retired Eric Burns, playing at for you know, <laughs> he was playing a game. And he was playing for charity. And so every hit that he got would be like, you know, 250 bucks for charity or something like that. It could have been a million because he couldn't hit uh, at all. Uh, but every ball he caught was $500. And I just remember Eric Burns playing left field and running like 
300 feet to catch a fly ball <laughs> and calling off like the second base. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was fun. <laughs> it is, uh, I think it's undeniably an obstacle to the, to the popularity of baseball that Bryce Harper's role in the game is m- mathematically limited to the extent that it is almost impossible for him to stand out, to be involved in many more situations than, yeah. um, you know, Wilson Ramos is going to be. That, like, that's, yeah. that's and not, the crucial situation. Right. And that's not necessarily, I'm not saying that's a bat, an obstacle to the sport appealing to me or to being something we fall in love with or, or maintaining its competitive integrity or anything like that. But if you wanted to reach out to the population as a whole, uh, you'd have a sport like basketball where 75% of the camera shots can be on Bryce Harper as they are uh-huh. on Tom Brady or 60% yeah. are on him as they are on Steph Curry. Um, and so uh, if, you, if, you, if you care about baseball appealing uh, to um, a larger population, then maybe you'd consider it a bad thing. But what are you going to do? Can't do anything. I'm not doing anything. It's just how it is. It's, <laughs> yep. Would you? I mean, you're asking me if it's. You're basically asking me if it is worth the trade off of baseball not being basketball to have it be baseball. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it is worth the trade off. Yeah. What was it on Hang Up and Listen? They were talking. Was it on Hang Up and Listen? I don't know. They were talking about uh, what the baseball equivalent would be, like Derek Jeter playing every position in his farewell game and yeah i guess the the upside of this is that if you have a kobe he can't he can't sabotage the game but no one ever does that other than kobe really well the a couple of equivalents yeah jeter that's a good jeter playing every position although no that that sort of in a way is almost the opposite because it is not jeter doing what jeter does it's jeter it's get it would be like if Kobe played center in his final game. That would uh-huh. be the equivalent of Jeter playing every position. I think that a better comparison would be if um uh you know in his final game bad old Steve Carlton had thrown a complete game no matter what uh-huh. and he you know he'd given up 14 home runs and threw 350 pitches but just kept on pitching cuz they came to see him. Or, you know, even a good pitcher like Mariano Rivera. If Mariano Rivera had started and thrown 190 pitches, uh, that might actually be better because I think we would all thrill to that. Like, that would be amazing if that's what Mariano Rivera had done in his final game. Just been like, you can have, you know, I'm donating my my UCL to science anyway, so you can have it. Uh Um, And that's probably pretty close to, to accurate. Although it's not quite because, again, what Kobe did was... He was Kobe to the max. Like Kobe always took way more shots. And here he just took even more shots, even though he's even worse. And it's not like Mariano Rivera was known for starting, but it's close. That's close. You might also have a, an example might be like if Vlad Guerrero in his final game or his final weeks just decided not taking a pitch, no matter Uh what, like not any pitches. I'm the guy who swings at everything and I'm swinging at everything. Yes. Uh, right. And, yeah, that's probably the best. If Ricky Henderson had decided that he was going to go on the first pitch of every time he reached base in his final month, maybe. But I think the, the Mariano Rivera one is probably the example I like the best. 
That would have been fun because I was oh, always so, curious to see what would happen so fun. if Rivera had tried to start post-cutter. What a mess that yeah. we didn't do that. I know. It was just right there for us. And they were playing the Astros, the, yeah. 100 and, the 111 loss Astros. Yeah, although I guess that was, was that Andy Pettit's farewell game too? There were <laughs> Yankees have had so many farewell games over the last few years. Uh, it might have been, but Mo didn't pitch the last... I don't think did Mo pitch. I don't think Mo pitched the last weekend against the Astros. No, I don't think he did. So he could have pitched in any of those games. Mm-hmm. It would have been the same. All right. Am I allowed to take questions about John Lester, or are you writing something about John Lester? Uh, give me a week. I'm, pro- I'm okay. I think I'm writing something in the next day or two. Play index. Sure. Uh. Well. Yeah. Sure. Uh. This is a very, 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 very simple one. This might be the simplest one I've ever done. Um, and so we'll figure out if I can talk about it long enough to justify, uh, my role in the email shows. Okay. Um, the, I, the other day, Starlin Castro got, I, I think he got, well, he got his thousandth hit and I, uh, he's younger than Derek Jeter was when Derek Jeter got his thousandth hit. Okay. So this is a, this is a fun fact. This is a, a genre of fun fact and, and it's interesting. And uh, it does point out just how young Starlin Castro is, how long he's been around, and how decent of a chance he has to, uh, to you know, to do some things in his career. It's also the case that Starlin Castro is probably not going to pass Derek Jeter's career hits total, and that's because Derek Jeter's career hits total was built not just on what he did in his early twenties, but in his longevity and in how long he was, he was very good. And I um, am, this is something that I think about a lot and I don't really have a grasp on why it appeals to me, but um, I, 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 what it, what I'm talking about is how it seems like a lot of careers end up being defined by how long a player is good, how good he is in his thirties, even though, even in those cases, in most instances he was better in his 20s that like most of most of a player's value happens before he's 30 but most of what makes a player a legend is actually what happens after he turns 30 um Uh which i'm not conveying well but i'll get to the point i was looking at i decided to use play index to look at where all-time record holders were in the all-time um, leaderboards through age 29. So, uh, you know, Pete Rose is the all-time hit king, but through age 29, relative to all other 29-year-olds, where was he, right? Yeah. Was he at the top? Okay, because most of, like, Pete Rose was better in his 20s than he was in his 30s, and Hank Aaron was better in his 20s than he was in his 30s. All these guys are better in their 20s than they were in their 30s, um, but were they the hit king in their 20s? And so I just very quickly looked at the record holders in some of the most uh, well-known records. So Pete Rose, through age 29, uh, was 37th in hits. He and, and just to clarify, I'm not saying that he was 37th on the all-time leaderboard in hits. I'm saying that of all players through age 29, 36 had more than Pete Rose in hits. Okay, right. so that's good. All right, so Pete Rose, the hit king, was 37th in hits. He was behind uh, Edgar Enteria, who was 12th. Edgar Renteria, 12th all-time in hits. Pete Rose, 37th all-time in hits through age 29. Pete Rose is the hit king. Edgar Renteria did not get to 3,000. Um, and so that's what I'm saying. That is the, the prototypical example that I can give you of this, okay? 
Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you a few more, though. Okay. Uh, Hank Aaron, RBI King, was eighth in RBIs through age 29. Nolan Ryan? Nolan Ryan, sixth in strikeouts through age 29. Sixth! Nolan Ryan! Huh. Behind Felix. Felix was ahead of him. Felix will probably come up two or 3,000 strikeouts short of Nolan Ryan in his career, even though he pitches in a higher strikeout era. Nolan Ryan trailed him through age 29. Uh, Greg Maddox, who is the, uh, I would say, the um, post-1950, if we want to call that the modern era for starting pitching, uh, he is the leader in wins in that era. He was 11th through age 29 uh, behind uh, CC Sabathia, who um, will, of course, come up way short, and Ken Holtzman and Catfish Hunter. Um, uh, let's see, Barry Bonds, uh, the uh, home run king, was 30th in home runs through age 29, uh, behind, uh, you know, Daryl Strawberry and, uh, and uh, Jose Canseco. Uh, even Hank Aaron was 8th behind Andrew Jones. And last one, Mariano Rivera was 36th in saves behind Chris Perez, behind Matt Caps, and uh, more than 160 behind K-Rod, uh, and more than like 140 or so. Uh, I think he's I think he's uh, 130-ish behind where Craig Kimbrell is right now, and Craig Kimbrell is actually in his age 28 season. So Kimbrell has a chance to be the all-time leader through age 29. He has a decent chance at passing Frankie Rodriguez, to be the all-time leader in saves through age 29, just miles and miles and miles and miles ahead of Mariano Rivera's pace through that point in his career. And that is the sort of thing that I look at, and immediately I think, oh my gosh, he might break the record. And of course, as we've talked about, nobody breaks records anymore, um, but he might break the record. Um, and he probably won't. It's weird to think that, that in fact, he just probably won't. It <laughs> doesn't matter how far you are ahead. Like these, <laughs> these records are one in your thirties. Um, that always kind of blows me away. I don't know why. I don't know why, Ben. I'm still thinking about why this matters to me now. Well, cause it, it seems like getting an early start, I mean, uh, <laughs> should help you as much as being productive late. Maybe it's just that almost every great player comes up within a range of a few years. I mean, you get your very occasional 18-year-old or something, but most superstars, most Hall of Fame type guys, they're coming up around 21 or 22 or somewhere around there. And a year or two there doesn't make that huge a difference, especially when you're not in your prime yet. But then there is a big difference between guys who retire at 32 and 35 and guys who hang on to be productive into their 40s. So I guess you can separate yourself more at the back end of a career than you can at the front. Yeah, it's almost like primary voting where everybody's good, everybody's basically playing and everybody's basically good at that level. Everybody, you know, the stars, they're all good in tw- at, you know when they're 25. And so whatever advantage you might have or not have, it's proportional allocation of delegates. You're that guy might be way better than you, but he's only picking up like eight homers a year on you. But yeah. but late 30s is winner take all. And if you can be Barry Bonds and hit 40 home runs at age 38, you're likely getting a 40 home run jump on the other guys who aren't hitting any. You know why, right? I do know why. He did yeah. steroids. Yeah. <laughs> 
But yes, you're right. Okay. Well, that play index, coupon code BP, discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription, was actually the perfect segue to the next question, which is from Christopher, who says, Today, a coworker alerted me to this Wikipedia article, list of Major League Baseball records considered unbreakable. And it is exactly that. And there are, I don't know, 20, 25 of them. I probably shouldn't rattle all of them off, but you can very easily look up this page if you'd like to. And you will know most of these records, but we can just pick out a few. And I think one that you just alluded to probably would be the most breakable, even as improbable as it is, as much as you just said that Craig Kimbrell will not break that record. That is probably one of the least improbable records, 652 saves. Yeah, that someone will break that. Uh-huh. The, person well, who bre- yeah. the person who breaks that is alive today. Right, unless, as we talked about yesterday, saves the save are goes on away. the way out. Yeah, which might happen. And that's the, the, the unbreakable records discussion. Anytime it gets to, well, they used to play baseball this way, and now we play baseball this way, therefore that record will never be broken, is makes the unbreakable record the unfun unbreakable <laughs> record. Like It's like going, well, no one will ever break the record. For most home runs hit in the polo grounds. It's just never going to happen. They don't make them like they used to. Yeah. Um, And I feel like a lot of unbreakable records, you know, like hearing that, uh, like, for instance, Will White and his 75 complete games in a season (laughs) in 1879. Um, There's a, yeah. It's not within the realm of possibility it's not no within the realm trying. of this sport it's no no one's trying i think that the yeah. if, if you have a record that no one's trying to break we can yeah. quit talking about it being unbreakable yeah and Take i think that's thought. probably true of you know of, a, of anything that is held by an old timey <laughs> now then you've got the uh the ones that are very old timey but technically people are still trying like what what's the record for batting average like 456 or something in it, well, 366 career. Yeah, but in a season. That's not even on here. I guess it's breakable. Yeah. But something like that, it's, it is in the gray area where the unbreakableness of it, the, the, the extreme unbreakableness of it, like it is clear that no one's getting anywhere close to that. And the clearer it gets in a way, the less impressive the record is. It's this paradox. Where, uh-huh. like, you, you can't take it too seriously. Yeah. But it is technically still a record that a person could try to break. But, yeah, that's not on here. So, most consecutive games played seems like a weird one. Oh, it, it, that's a weird record because I, I don't think anyone wants to see it broken. Right, yeah. And I don't think anybody would. I, I think if every player started their major league career with the goal of breaking that record... It would get broken without that much trouble. Uh-huh. I know that it it's, it's not worth it. It's not worth it, right? Like, <laughs> it, but if you start with 750 players every year, or if you start with you know scores of people making their major league debut every year, and if a guy, if you know, if a mysterious man approached them in the hallway and uh, revealed themselves uh, to to be God and said. Uh, I was going to ask you to sacrifice your son on an altar. Instead, I just want you to break the Cal Ripken record. Uh-huh. And and they went out there with that as their singular goal. I think it would get broken without too much difficulty. Like, it's not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
But nobody wants to. Nobody really wants to break it, and nobody really wants to see it get broken. So it's just not – it's going to live forever. Right. Uh, Uh, Yeah. I think it's pretty hard. I feel like I should be the Ron Washington of this segment and say it's incredibly hard. But most. most career stolen bases is both a change in the way the game is played, but I think also genuinely it is not going to get broken. Well, it might get broken like, because, well, like the piece I wrote about whether 90 feet is still long enough in relation to Billy Hamilton. And the yeah. answer has been, I think, pretty clearly proven that 90 feet is still long enough, but it's not a guarantee that it always will be. And uh-huh. the, uh, humans change. 90 feet is not changing. And there is the possibility that there will come a point in time where uh, humans have, you know, evolved or the sport or whatever have uh, gotten to the point where it should probably be 91 feet, but we're not changing that. And it becomes too hard to stop somebody. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Probably there's, unlikely, uh, there's not like, necessarily you know, consecutive no hitters. Which is yeah, two, which is, a which tri- is that's a that's bar trivia more than anything. Not not yeah. that it happened, but as the right, like that is the that's your that's your trick answer. Yeah, I mean, no not hitters really are a record. It's not are, really a record either. Like nobody, it is. It's, it's only feat. happened once, but that is a that's a play index. Yeah, it's a more feat. than anything that that got famous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you consider it a record, then I would say it's breakable, just because there's so much less contact now. Uh-huh. Even though pitchers are not throwing complete games anymore, so that's within the realm of possibility. I don't maybe triples, triples in a season, thirty six. Yeah, get the yeah get the right park, mm-hmm. and uh, get the right guy. The fact that nobody in the last fifty years has come within thirteen <laughs> of it, uh, so that just tells you that it it's probably. Unlikely, but if you got the right ballpark, if they started making right. ballparks with triples in mind, uh-huh. longest hitting streak is, of course, extremely unlikely, but, but breakable. Very but breakable. breakable. The it, it's no conditions let... of the game have not changed to the exactly. extent that it is impossible. I mean, exactly. it's certainly it a... harder now. Batting averages are lower. Guys are not putting as much emphasis on contact. Maybe defense is better. Lots of reasons why it's probably harder than it was, and it was really hard then. But it's not out of the realm of possibility. It is, right, it is basically not less likely today than it was when it happened. And so if it happened once, it could happen again. Like you say, it is less likely because of those factors, but not significantly. Right. Uh, So I would say, I would think that if I had to pick which of these are going to get broken in our lifetime, what what about most all-star games played? That's a tricky one because that's a cheat. They got a cheat. Hank Aaron, 25, but that's because there were two All-Star games for four years. Yeah. And so that's a big cheat. On the other hand, players age better, or at least they were aging better for a while, and we have seen seen some outliers uh, who have aged extremely well. Uh, is it conceivable that we'll see a 26-year career of a player who debuts with something like Bryce Harper's immediate All-Star ability? And, um, you know, he plays from... All-Star games made... Maybe, but All Star Games played. I doubt it because. Oh uh, yeah, good point. But All Star Games game made. doesn't have the same status, and people take the game off for little to no reason. A lot more people make All Star Games though, too. True. Yeah. The active player is fourteen. I think that that is just bare. It is conceivable. It's not impossible. It's mm-hmm. also not likely. Uh, if I had to pick, uh, which ones will, uh, I mean, will... Uh, consecutive 200 hit seasons? I mean, each road yeah. just did that. Yeah, no reason that couldn't happen. Yeah. 
It's it's certain it's it's crazy to call it unbreakable. Yeah. Right. It's hard hard to break. Uh, I would guess that. Well, I I think that the uh, if I had to guess the ones that are going to get broken in our career on this list, uh, I would say that saves is the first one that I would pick. Hit King is the second one. I I could see someone getting forty two fifty seven. Hmm. Maybe you don't think so? I'd say that's less likely than the consecutive ten seasons of two hundred hits. Randy Johnson came within 900 strikeouts of Nolan Ryan. He started extremely late and essentially had no strikeouts to speak of uh, until, you know, four or five years after some pitchers, you know, are good. Maybe that's not a coincidence. Maybe that's why he lasted. Uh, But strikeouts in general go up. I would have said 57-14 won't get broken, but thinking about how close Johnson got, I kind of feel like maybe... Maybe it's it's not as far from possible as like Cy Young's career wins or whatever, but I think rising strikeouts haven't kept pace with pitcher usage. I mean, guys don't get as many strikeouts now per season because they don't throw as many innings and face as many batters. So it would require a large reversal in a long-standing trend. I think. Yeah, I guess. Well, but are, so are we saying that Randy Johnson was of a previous era that nobody else is going to throw innings like that and that he benefits from being of the previous era instead of saying that he is of this era and therefore provides a model for how it could happen? Yeah, I would say he qualifies as a different era. I mean, he started in 88. His, I mean, he threw uh, 271 regular season innings was his high. I mean, which is only like 20 more than, you know, Justin Verlander's high. Right. It's it's possible. I, okay. So going back to my, my rankings, saves number one, hit streak number two, hit king number three, career strikeouts number four. Those are my four most breakable, unbreakable records. Uh Uh-huh. Golly, Randy Johnson, 45. (laughs) 45. He was still good. Yeah. And he was, Yeah. Still striking out eight per nine. <laughs> when uh, that wasn't league average. Yeah, he struck out thirteen point four per nine as a starter. Man, you look at. I'm, I think I'm. I think I'm taking out strikeouts because you look at the. We talk about the strikeout rate going up all the time, but nobody really comes close to what Randy Johnson and Pedro Martinez were doing anymore as starters. Like, there's a big drop off from what you expected. Like, everybody strikes out ten per nine now. Uh-huh. But and and people weren't doing that in 1997. But Randy Johnson was routinely striking out elite bullpen strikeout numbers, and uh, that doesn't really happen anymore. Darvish kind of got close, and I guess Kershaw, maybe Syndergaard will do it. How old's Noah Syndergaard? 24. He is the best right now. He is the best chance at this record right now. <laughs> Noah Syndergaard throws so hard he leaves marks on his catcher. <laughs> Why did I look that up? Syndergaard's 23 this uh-huh. year. All right. I I will say that all but three of these records are, are as baseball is played today, unbreakable. All right. I'm, the only ones I'm, con- I'm conceding are, are breakable, even if they won't get broken, that are breakable the way that the game is played today are the career hits, hitting streak, and career saves. Oh, and the 10 straight 200 hit. That's a barely a record. Yeah. Either. Mm-hmm. And by the way, two grand slams in an inning also. Like, yeah. Don't be smart. 
All right. Like, because the thing, you look, you can tell it's not a record because before you said it, nobody considered it a record. Yeah. It's like, nobody two. was like, who's going to who's gonna break the record for most Grand Slams in an inning? Like, yeah. like, back before Fernando Tatis, it wasn't like, oh, like, every time someone got a Grand Slam in an inning, it wasn't like, record watch, you know, flip <laughs> <No>. the... <laughs> Yeah, I don't think something that is only two can be a satisfying record. Okay, last one from another Patreon supporter, Amos Blackman, who says, I feel like this might cover territory already discussed, particularly by Sam, but today's article in the New York Times about the Yankees replay reviewer Brett Weber is actually pretty damning about him, no? The article notes that the Yankees have the highest success rate in baseball on replay reviews, 77% which immediately sent up a red flag in keeping with Sam's principle that if you never miss a flight, you're wasting time showing up too early. This sense was confirmed when the article said that the Yankees have issued the fewest challenges since the system was implemented and that the teams with the most are the Rays and the Cubs. Should this article get Brett Weber fired? Are challenges the rare case where a counting stat, most successful challenges, truly is the best measure of true talent? Yeah, I mean, the New York Times article that he refers to as a very interesting article, generally speaking, first of all. And uh, I learned a lot about this guy's job. I learned a lot about a lot of things. It was really fun. It was it was great. The, the, my, favorite, uh, my favorite passage of it was Kuroda, Miller, and Brett Gardner are the voices most frequently in his ear. Like they're just, they all pile around him in this little windowless room and yeah. look at, and they try to tell him to, and A-Rod as well, they run back there and they look over his shoulder, and then they try to influence him. And uh, they impl- the, the sort of implied that the players want to call a lot more, <laughs> call <laughs> yeah. for a lot more reviews, that they yeah. see challengeable plays everywhere. Uh-huh. So we learn a lot about what this job is, uh, which is one small part of his day. He does many, many, many other things. And mm-hmm. so First, to, to get it out of the way, no, he, sh- he should not be fired. He, he presumably does a lot for the organization. Uh, and, um, and also, we don't know how much the decision, the philosophy that the Yankees pursue in terms of how often they're going to call replays is uh, Weber freelancing or as opposed to the manager. Maybe right. the manager has given him, you know, has told him, hey, I don't want to, you know, I, I really value the... Uh, I really value saving our, our review, or maybe the front office has. Uh, so uh, there's, I'm absolutely not going to say that Weber should be fired. Uh, that said, yeah. <laughs> uh, this is not, a, he, no, he's, I, he, probably not. He's, he's clearly, he's got a plan and he's doing it well. Uh, it is not the plan I would, I would choose. This, this, this whole article, uh, as the emailer says, this whole article frames uh, as a good something that is a bad. Like it uses words yeah. like the Yankees have been judicious. Right. That is a bad thing to be, I I believe. I don't I don't think that there's any we all watch enough baseball, I think, to know by now, to have kind of uh got this internal clock in our heads, uh, where we know that there are not a great deal of overturnable calls that are not getting overturned because the team used their review early. Right. And if that were happening, uh, then we would be able to do some math. But that essentially never happens. The replay review is, um, in this case, is being used like, um, you know, like a backup catcher where the manager doesn't, presumably doesn't want to use it because it's worried about not having it. 
but the case where that doesn't happen is exceedingly rare. There, there just are not frequent games where you're seeing them turn because the play, the manager didn't use his review. So uh-huh. I, I just don't, I just don't see a justification for this. They're also, it's not just that they have the uh, highest success rate and the lowest, rev, you know, challenge rate. But as this article points out, they're high above everybody else. They're yeah. they're like ten percent higher, ten percentage points higher than the second team. Um, and it's also not you know it's a, I I don't want to be swayed too much by this, but the fact that the Rays and the Cubs are way at the other extreme uh-huh. feels like you know validation of this position that you should just call him all the time yeah so i don't know there's a lot of quotes about how good he is at right so that's the only possibility right he's preternaturally talented at this job and therefore he always challenges when you should challenge and he never challenges when you shouldn't and he never makes a mistake which i don't i don't even think you could i don't think that explanation even works because that would presuppose that there have been fewer opportunities for them to do this like right. that they've never missed well, one it doesn't it doesn't compute look the, the the bottom line is that you have to assume that there's no particular bias that would lead to teams getting um to teams having more calls incorrectly go against them so if you assume that over the course of these two and a half years every team has roughly the same number of opportunities to overturn a call, then it's pretty easy to just look and say, well, okay, so who did have the most overturned? Like that's yeah. the whole percentage means nothing. The percentage is judging this on some denominator that we consider irrelevant. The denominator right. and that's means what Amos was saying, right? That this yeah. is the case where accounting stat is a better accounting measure. Accounting stat is a hundred percent a better measure, unless you can demonstrate to me why losing your review, uh, your right to review is consistently burning teams and the fact that it's not, it's not. Um, I mean, there's a quote from Weber. There are some philosophies that say challenge everything. If you lose, you lose it. I go back to it's either right or wrong. I think our process works, but we continue to tweak it. So it is not as though the Weber and the Yankees have not thought about this. They have a, they have decided that they are going to take this far left position or far right position or whatever on the, on the issue. And so if you assume that, Weber is part of an organization that has decided this. Um, he's doing his job very well, and you can't blame him for that. He might be, like, if you put him on the, he might be preternaturally good at this, and if you put him on the Cubs or the Rays, maybe he would be the best at that philosophy. But I think that the Yankees' philosophy doesn't make any logical sense. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. So, not fired, but perhaps talked to. <laughs> Joe Girardi. Here's a quote from Girardi. It's not like you get as many as you want. So if you call for a replay, you'd better be right. That's just completely wrong. It, it is true that it's not like you get as many as you want. You do, though, as a practical matter, get as many as you need. Yeah. You do, as a practical matter, have more than you need. There is a surplus of <laughs> review opportunities or whatever review tickets that managers get. And you will occasionally get burned, it is true. But it is not happening. And so Girardi is focused on... This, uh, he is focused on the finiteness of it instead of, uh, instead of the, you know, relative infiniteness of these reviews. It is like you sometimes read about these, you know, billionaires, particularly from, well, 
I don't know. Maybe they happen today too. But you, you'll read about these like extremely rich people who are also incredibly miserly and not like frugal, not like Warren Buffett driving a Hyundai, but like they, you know, reuse, uh, deli wrap because they're just so, they're just so obsessed with not spending any money at all because I, presumably they have some pathology that makes them think that they're, gonna run out of money even though they're like millionaires there was an episode of the dollop about one of those there was yeah the witch of wall street the witch the witch of wall street yes that is an example of it exactly and so this is i think a situation where instead of uh realizing that you are a uh a billionaire uh you are focusing uh on you know the the limits that he is a he is rich with review opportunities he is a rich rich man when it comes to review opportunities so uh just you know spend them yeah all right. So uh depends on how this system came about. If he uh if he is on strike here, if everyone is telling him call more challenges and he refuses to, then maybe you find something else for him to do. But uh <laughs> seems like an extremely good employee though. Like there's a lot to this article that's that is just about him yeah. and it really seems like he is an extremely multi-talented person, very smart. Yeah, uh, yeah, he was he was there I when I was of, uh, an intern there. I, I want him seemed to like be, a nice guy. No, never, I, know. I want him never to be challenged a GM. me on anything. I I would hire this this guy to be a GM, I, <laughs> but I at this moment I do think that this is his weak spot. Uh huh. Okay, so that is it for today. You can send us emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectives dot com or by messaging us through Patreon. Speaking of which, you can support the podcast on Patreon. Five listeners who have done so and are therefore entitled to be thanked individually are Bill Brickley, Brian Grosnick, Kevin Whitaker, Matt Zabel, and Sean Neugebauer. Thank you. You can buy our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, the story of how Sam and I took over an independent league team, the Sonoma Stompers, last summer and tried to run it according to sabermetric principles comes out in less than two weeks now. You can pre-order it at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your local bookstores. I know I've been telling you this for weeks now, but you trust me, right? You'll like it. You're already listening to our words. You might as well read our words. It helps us if you pre-order it as opposed to buying it after release. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. We will be back with another show tomorrow. Welcome